John chapter 17, our text, verses 6 through 12. <clears throat> As we've started a couple weeks ago, we are in the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus, what is rightfully called the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that gives us a glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son, as we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. As we see our Lord's petitioning to the, to the Father, glorifying Him, Him completing His work, all of these things we were talking about, how He is saying these, and He's saying them in the past tense. I've accomplished the work. Everything is a done deal. It's almost as if it had already happened, though at the time, of course, our Lord is praying this. The cross is still a few hours away. This is one of those times in which we need to understand just how privileged that we are to read this prayer by our Lord. This is, this is our great high priest who is praying on behalf of his people. He prays for the disciples. He prays for those that will believe through the word of the disciples. It's here in our text today and those following in which we, we see our Lord Jesus fulfilling his role as our great mediator, our great high priest. Back in the Old Testament, the high priest would intercede on behalf of the people. He would be the one on behalf of the people who would go before the Lord. Our Lord Jesus is doing that here. He is praying for his people. Here's the Lord of glory bringing all of the people who would believe up before the Father and petitioning the Father for certain things concerning them. He prays for protection in our text today. He prays for unity. He recounts his ministry in our text today, the success of his ministry, his love for those that the Father had given to him. And he uses that language in this passage of those whom the Father has given to me, which in itself is, is astonishing, just the language there, recounting the fact of being a gift from the Father to the Son. All the people of God are a gift from the Father to the Son. We see the righteous character of our Lord once again on display, the righteous character of the Father, the great intercession He makes on our behalf, some things here that are just very comforting, especially considering the things that Jesus will say of His disciples. It gives us a true character of, 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 of a disciple, but in light of what He says here, how great that comfort is considering what he had just said to them in chapters 13 to 16. Of how we have talked about before how our Lord intercedes and he perfects our prayers, he perfects our worship, he perfects all the things that we seek to do on his behalf to glorify him. And we see that here. I pray that we would indeed be comforted, that we would be even more trusting of the word of the Lord walking worthy of our calling, comfort in our, in our failures. That's going to be a big part of this and seeing how great the love is of the Father and the Son to you who believe. 
If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Looking at John chapter 17, verses 6 to 12. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your, word, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, we again come into your presence. We give you thanks. We honor you this day. Father, we pray that that the Spirit of God would move mightily within our hearts, giving us understanding of this passage, the greatness of this passage, the privilege that we have of being able to read this prayer of our Lord great comfort that it produces in our hearts. We pray indeed that it would be manifested. Father, let it cultivate in us a greater desire to trust you, to obey you, to walk worthy. Thank you for his work, for his work of intercession. Thank you for the spirit of God who who intercedes on our behalf as well. We would have no hope without him if it weren't for his regenerating work also. Thank you again, Father, for this passage, and may you conform us even more so to be to the image of your Son through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Here, the Lord Jesus, he has, has finished praying on behalf of himself. He has prayed for the Father to glorify Him. He he has given us an understanding of that which is really the benefit, the great privilege of eternal life is knowing God. It is not just having a life that never ends. That's wonderful. But the greatest privilege of eternal life is knowing God, knowing Him intimately, that close, intimate fellowship. That is the true nature, the true blessing of eternal life. As Jesus says in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our Lord has prayed to the Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We talked about how, according to Isaiah, the Lord does not share his glory with another. And here, Christ Jesus is praying to the Father. Acknowledging that this is a glory that they share together. This is him praying to the Father to be clothed with splendor and majesty as he was previously. Except this time it was going to be a little different as we had discussed. 
It's not in the same way that Jesus is going back to the right hand of the Father as he was previously when our Lord added, added humanity to his being. And he rose again in this physical glorified body that he is forever in this physical glorified body. It still retains its same properties, even though he, of course, is, is fully divine. He's truly God. He retains all the properties of, of his divinity. Not one of them is diminished. Not one of them is lost. He did not empty himself of being God. He is still the omnipresent, omniscient God that has always existed. The difference being he has added humanity to his being, ascending to the right hand of the Father, asking the Father to fulfill what the Father had promised him, by him, by him finishing and fulfilling his will. Now our Lord turns his attention then to his disciples. Our Lord is glorified, as he has said here in his prayer. He has glorified the Father. The times come for the Son to be glorified. And the way in which Christ is glorified is through the disciples as well. It's through the cross, through the disciples also and so he turns his attention to them to pray for them <clears throat> the glory of our lord as one theologian said is him saving his people that's his glory on display and so it is natural that he of course would be praying for them he recounts really what he what he had initially done throughout his ministry he says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I manifested your name. I revealed your name. The words which you gave me, I've given to them. The very purpose of our Lord Jesus in living the perfect life, and then he's getting ready to go to the cross and become the object of God's wrath in order to satisfy his justice his purpose in his life and everything was to reveal the Father. It was to manifest the Father. And perhaps because of Jesus' prayer here, that's maybe why the Spirit of God had inspired John in John chapter 1, verse 18 to say, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. He has explained Him. Because that's what Jesus did. He expounded the Father. He exegeted the Father. Through everything that he did and everything that he said, the name of the Father was manifested through the Son. So he's recounting everything that he had, that he had done. And, and that's really summing up every word that he spoke, every deed that he, that he performed, every miracle was manifesting, revealing the Father to the world. As he says in verse 3, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We talked about how Christ is the only one who is the authorized revealer of the Father. There is no one else. And what did he do? He manifested the name of the Father to those that the Father had given to him. He revealed the words to the men whom the Father had given to him. Everything. Everything. That Christ did was to manifest the very nature of the Father, the very nature of God. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul would, would say that he is the visible image of the invisible God. Or why the writer of Hebrews says that, that he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. 
Why, Jesus himself would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, because of the same person, we understand there are three persons within the in God. But that everything that Jesus said, did, was manifesting the very character and nature of God in a way in which man could at least grasp something about him. As Calvin says, he says, you know, that God talks to us in a baby talk, kind of a lisping, so that we can understand something of who he is. He has to condescend to do that. And Christ has revealed himself in such a way as a man that we may understand at least some of what our finite minds can understand of the glory and the majesty of our God. So that's a really summing up of what our Lord had done. Manifesting his name, manifesting his words to the world. Now, he goes on here. <clears throat> I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Now, here's, here's where we're getting into looking at the very mission of Christ as a whole. Did he accomplish everything? Is it a mission in which we could say that he was successful? And his words here are absolutely demonstrating that that is indeed the case. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. This is, this is acknowledging to the Father that everything is going according to plan. Everything that was set out to accomplish has been accomplished. No one's been lost. None of God's will has been thwarted. Everything is going according to plan. Because those whom you have given me have received your word. They know that I have come forth from you. Everything that I have said is from you. That is also indicating the true character of a believer. That a true Believer is not only acknowledging God's truth, but trusting in God's truth. These men have received it. They believe it. And this is, this is showing this, that everything is successful in the mission of Christ. You know, it's a shame that you have some earlier belief, uh, beliefs concerning, concerning the cross, concerning all that, that really... Christ had come. He tried to offer the kingdom to the Jews. They rejected it, so they crucified him. And so you have the church age, which is really considered to be a parenthesis within the redemptive history of God. That since they rejected now, he turns his attention then to the Gentile church. That's not it at all. Everything that Christ had set to accomplish is accomplished. Everything went according to plan. We know, obviously, within the sovereign decree of God, that everything that is getting ready to occur in the life of Christ, suffering and his death and his resurrection, everything was planned before the foundation of the world. He was the lamb known before the foundation of the world. And so his mission, regardless of those that had rejected him, regardless of all the opposition that he received, the slander that he received, everything was successful, everything that he set out to do. And we can look at that and say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to, to go well with how we would consider success to be. 
We have a, a mindset of success as, as it would be even more successful had millions of people believed upon his first coming. But that's, that's not it. That's not what God had intended to do. For those that did not believe, it was not as if God's will was thwarted and that Christ is just trying to find anybody to believe in him. Those that the Father had given to him are those who came to faith. He even says to those that are opposing him in John 10, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. So everything has been successful. Everything has been going according to plan. Nothing has been thwarted. Nothing has been lost. The disciples have accepted the words of the Father. They believe that He has been sent by the Father. Here's the interesting thing, and here's the, the great comforting thing about this very truth. The way that He speaks of His disciples here. Now, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they were the Father's because the Father is the one who had chosen them. Christ is the one who is receiving them from the Father. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now think of what he's saying here. That's some, that's some beautiful things that he's saying about his disciples. As he is praying to the Father, they believed. They have received. They know that I came forth from you. When just a few chapters ago, our Lord is having to rebuke them. Because they're debating amongst themselves back in John chapter 13, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're not even willing to wash each other's feet because that's just beneath them. One of them is going to deny him three times. The rest of them are going to scatter. But he doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say anything about their, their failures or their faults. The fact that he says to Philip, Philip, have you, have you not known me? Have I been so long with you and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But in spite of their failures... In spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their lack of faith, their weakness. When he is praying to the Father here concerning those men, I've manifested your name and they've received your words. They believe that I came forth from you. William Hendrickson says this, it should be noted that the same master who just a moment ago when he addressed his disciples had pointed out the weakness of their faith, now in addressing the Father has not a word to say with reference to this condition of imperfection. As the real high priest whose heart is filled with love for his own, he simply describes these men of little faith as those who have kept the Father's word truly Love takes no account of evil. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Think of that. The imperfections and the weaknesses of their faith. 
are not even what Christ brings up to the Father. Because as their high priest, the one who is atoning for their sin, the one who is making them perfect before the Father, in Him, there are no imperfections. So none of that is even brought up. But instead, He says, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. That is the work of the high priest. That is exactly what the high priest is to do on behalf of the people, to mediate, to come before God Almighty on behalf of the people. Now, does that mean that we don't sin anymore and we don't have any imperfections and all of that? Absolutely not. We know that we sin. We know that we have weaknesses. We know our own imperfections. But in Christ, this is, this is the joy of salvation. This is, the, this is what Christ is accomplishing on behalf of His people is that in Him, there is only perfection in the sight of God. And so He is performing that work of mediator, that intercessor, of that high priest, even in this prayer right here, not to even bring up the imperfections because they're going to be made perfect in Him. Only speaking of what He is accomplishing thus far in the hearts of these men who are themselves imperfect. They're perfected in Him. That is amazing. But that's, but that's the thing. It's not just on their behalf. This is on behalf of all the people of God. That when God looks at us, He is no longer seeing the, the, the sinfulness of, of, and the wickedness of our hearts, but He is seeing the righteousness of His Son. That's, that's, what words can you use for that? To describe what God has done on behalf of sinners. And you see that right there. That Christ is already performing that work as the great high priest. And that same work is what is applied to all who believe. You know... I remember one of my family members telling me this. Christ has died for those that are strong in faith. And he's died for those that are weak in faith. Sometimes we want people to move along quickly in their sanctification. And so we, we try to, to move them along as quickly as what we think that they ought to be going. When in reality it's the Spirit of God who is bringing them along in, 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 at His pace. And we look at it and we say we were just so unsure of things. But if we see a progression in them, then we can look and see that the Spirit of God is working in them. Yes, they still have faults as we do. Any one of us. But Christ has given His life for those that are weak in faith, those that are strong in faith. But in Him, they will stand faultless before the throne. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. Of what Christ has accomplished on behalf of sinners. Even in their weaknesses. Even in our weaknesses. Christ intercedes. And just as the spirit of God. Perfect, intercedes on our behalf. Perfecting our prayers. And perfecting our worship. And perfecting our obedience before the father. 
so Christ is. Because we're found in him. That's all part of the success of his mission. Everything's gone according to plan. The men that the Father had given to him out of the world are perfected in him before the Father. And that's on behalf of all who believe. Look, his prayer, his prayer is not universally uh, given. He's praying on behalf of his people. He says there, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There is a distinction that is made here. Christ is not praying universally for everybody in the world. He is praying for those that the Father had given to him. This is, his, this is a demonstration of his response to an unbelieving world. He prays for his own. One writer says, Jesus doesn't pray for the world. To do so would be tantamount to praying that the world continue in its worldliness, which would be blasphemous. What then would he be praying for the world if he was to lift them up in prayer? They're going to continue to be who they are and continue in sin, continue in wickedness. The ones who are chosen out of the world by the Father... They are in view, as we'll see throughout the rest of his prayer. So when we talk about things like that, I mean, we need to be careful because we like to say things, but we don't like to follow out what that means. We like to make Christ's atonement universal for everyone, but what's the implications of that? We like to think that Christ is praying for everyone in the world. Christ is desiring everyone in the world, but what is the end result of what we're saying? As this theologian said, if Christ is praying for the world, is he praying for them to continue in their worldliness? Because they're not going to come to faith. What then would he be praying for? But he is praying absolutely for those that the Father had given to him. He is praying on their behalf. He is praying for his people. This isn't just a prayer just for the disciples either. That This is, this is a prayer that is... That is for all the people of God because he's going to bring them up here very shortly. Christ is praying for all that the Father had given to him out of the world. Who are they? I don't know. Is there a way to tell perhaps who the elect of God are? And we just limit our declaring the gospel to them? No. Just as Spurgeon said, there's no, there's no E stamped on their back so that you know who the elect are. So, we approach everyone in the sense that they are the elect. And we, we declare the gospel to them and we pray that God would open the eyes of their hearts if it be His will. Only He knows those things. So I want to say that. I want to be careful because even though we see our Lord you know, praying on behalf of his people, he knows whom his people are. He knows whom the Father has given to him. He's praying on their behalf. He's giving his life on their behalf. And there's an exclusion there of those that are not. 
Because he's going to die a real death for sin on behalf of those that the Father had given to him. But we've got to be careful because we're not him. We're not God. We don't know. And so, we don't withhold the gospel from someone because we think perhaps that they're just so far gone and surely they're not part of the elect and all this other stuff that, that more of the hyper-Calvinist people like, to, like to, to throw out there. We don't know. Is anyone so far gone that God can't regenerate their heart? So far gone that God can't give them eyes of, of faith to see and believe? No. And remember this. God has to reach no further down to get them than he did us. Any one of us. What do sinners do? They sin. We were all dead in trespasses and sin. By nature, children of wrath. Perhaps people in our own lives had thought, maybe there's no hope for them. They just keep going their own way. But at God's appointed time, whether it was because of remembering what someone had said to us before about the gospel, all of a sudden just becoming true in our minds of what we had heard before, or being in a service and being having the gospel preached to us, or down the road with our friend and our friend giving us the gospel and then us believing again. Whatever the case was, it happened at God's appointed time. And so many beforehand would have thought we were without hope too. So let us not make the mistake of, of ever withholding or trying to distinguish or trying to figure out who is the elect, who isn't the elect that is known in the mind of God. Only in the mind of God. Let us be diligent that the gospel goes forth to everybody. He knows. He died for them. He's glorified in saving them. He's glorified in, in the people of God bearing fruit. You know, that's something else about, about the people of God in the sight of God, in the sight of Christ. <clears throat> Jesus is glorified in the salvation of his people. He's glorified in saving them, and he's glorified in their bearing fruit. So anyone that the Father had given to him, they will come, and Christ will be glorified in them, just as he is glorified in all who believe. You understand that, that there is a great interest in which Christ has in your life and that the Father has in your life because he is glorified when we are growing in the grace of God, when we are growing in sanctification, when we are bearing fruit. Christ is glorified, and so he takes interest in all the people of God for that very purpose to be glorified. So none will be lost. All will come to faith, and Christ will receive that glory, that glory, that honor. Indeed, he is glorified in bearing fruit people of God bearing fruit, the people of God believing and acknowledging and trusting and all those characteristics that we're looking at of the disciples, Christ is glorified in all of that. And so he will accomplish all his good pleasure and all that the Father had given to him. Now look what he prays for. 
he says, beginning of verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. A great con contrast that is there between the holiness of the Father and the worldliness of the world, the darkness of the world. This is his first petition on behalf of his disciples. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them. Preserve them. Protect them. Christ had done that in his, in his earthly ministry. He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition or the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's saying, keep them in your power. Keep them in the knowledge of you. Preserve them. Keep them in your name. Now, he said that a couple of times thus far, that he's manifested his name, keep them in his name, all of this language. And we're looking at, if we could just hold on for a second, look back in the Old Testament to see exactly what he's referring to. He's referring to the totality of who God is. I've manifested the totality of who you are. Keep them in your name that you have given to me, that revelatory uh, that, that revelation that Christ has manifested to the world of the Father's character. Keep them in your power. Keep them. Keep them in the knowledge of you. Now, if you remember back in, in Exodus chapter 33, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses praying to, the, uh, praying to the Lord, Show me your glory. I will make all my goodness to pass before you, and I will declare my name. And what, what were the characteristics of his name? Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low. This is the Lord declaring his name, declaring his attributes, declaring his nature, declaring his power. All of that is manifested in his name. That's why Christ is saying, I've declared your name, I've manifested your name, and so keep them in your name. We're looking at the name of God, and actually in Exodus chapter 34, he says the Lord, is his covenant name, and he says the Lord God, which is demonstrating his almighty power, but then the characteristics that come thereafter are the graces of God, that are the manifestation of his name, of his very character. These Christ has manifested to the world. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your power. Protect them, preserve them. Protect them from the evil one. None were lost except the son of destruction. Or as some translations say, the one doomed to destruction. They could either talk about, in reference to Judas, whether it's talking about Judas's character or his destination. Both would be true. 
Christ had protected his disciples while he was on the earth. If you think of all those times in which people wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to push him off a cliff or they wanted to take up stones to stone him, that his disciples are in danger in those moments as well. And since it wasn't his appointed time, his hour hadn't come, he could pass through the, the crowd, all of that, that his disciples would have remained unharmed as well because he was protecting them. He was guiding them. And now he's praying to the Father upon his departure. I'm no longer in the world, but they're still here. He doesn't say, take them out of the world. They're still here. Just protect them. Protect those whom you have given me. And that's showing an interest that the Father has in us too. Because if we belong to the Father by reason of him choosing the elect unto salvation and then granting them to the Son, the Son has a great interest in us as well, but the Father does as well. The Father delights in the Son and delights in giving us to the Son, and so He delights in us. And so you have this inner Trinitarian prayer that is here that is, that is a demonstration of God's love for you and His protection of you so that we can truly rest assured that nothing will happen to us other than what God has appointed to happen because God has His protection over us. And nothing can thwart his will. And so we know that whatever comes to pass, comes to pass by the will of God. Regardless if he uses the enemy to do it or he doesn't. And I say that because we like to give Satan too much credit. That the enemy's attacking because this has gone wrong. The enemy's attacking because this has gone wrong. Is the, is the attack of the enemy under the sovereign hand of God? It is. So then we don't look to the enemy and we don't fear the enemy because maybe he's having these things to happen in our life. We turn our attention to the one who is in control over it all anyway. We turn our attention to the Lord to help us. Yeah, that was the very thing that you find in Job. Even though you see Satan that's permitted to do all these things, what does he say to his wife? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Right? He doesn't say the Lord had given these things and then the enemy of our souls has, has caused all this havoc and destruction. One of the great lessons that you learn from Job is the sovereign hand of God in it all. But, but we like to give the enemy too much credit. The devil's attacking. The devil's attacking because I couldn't find my car keys this morning. Or the devil's attacking because I got a flat tire. The devil's attacking because I'm very stressful and I'm taking it out on everybody else. No, you're probably just a jerk having a bad day. We give him too much credit. Because Jesus is praying for the Father to protect us and to keep us and to preserve us. And since he is praying for us, there is no created thing that could ever penetrate into our lives unless the sovereign God who is preserving us allows him to come in for a purpose. Because Christ is praying for you and for me, for all. We need to remember that. We need to take comfort in that. 
especially when terrible things happen in our life or terrible things happen on a, a grander scale. You know, a big tsunami comes through or a hurricane or a, a tornado comes through. You know, not even have anything to do with the enemy. Let's just say the, the, the natural weather. Well, they causes so much destruction. Well, that wasn't God's will that this happened. People say that. People say things like that. Just to, I don't know if they're just trying to keep God out of hot water. I mean, obviously he don't mind to say that the, the snow and the rain and the hail and the lightning and everything comes from me. That's what he says. It's absolutely God's will. Whatever happens and whatever God permits to happen is by his sovereign will, by his sovereign decree. Recognize that. Let's be comforted in that. He's not praying to the Father, I hope that you can preserve them. I hope that you can keep them. Christ is praying again. This is a prayer of confidence. I know you can do this. And I know you will do this. Because you delight to do it. I notice that we're still in the world as disciples are still in the world. He acknowledges, or he, he confesses this in his prayer. He, he refers to the Father as Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Protect them. Protect them from the world. Protect them from darkness. And this is very important. Because... This is something that, that sometimes as parents that we have to come to terms with. We like to protect our children. We want to keep them from anything that would harm their minds, anything that would harm them altogether. But there comes a time in which we have to let them go. A time in which they're going to move off. They're not going to be in the house Here's the great comfort in this is that the Father's power to preserve His own is greater than any influence of the world. His power to keep them is greater than any influence in the world. Those are things we've got to remember in that because it's hard to let go. It's hard to see them go because you want to you want to know where they're at. Sometimes you just have to give that up and say, "Lord, I have to trust you with my children because I can't keep them, but I know that your hand of protection is over them. So let me trust in you." That's. That's, that's, that's how we're supposed to respond to the great power of God. That he can do what we can't. Whether it's in reference to your children, whether it's in reference to people that you love or whatever the case is. God's power is greater than any other influence. His power of preserving 
is greater than any creature. So that, Jesus says, none can pluck them out of my Father's hand. Father protects. So he says, Holy Father, acknowledging that, that, that great contrast, the holiness of the Father in reference to everything else, keep them in your name. Protect them. And so that's his first petition, to keep them. But he says here as well that they may be one even as we are. That's the second. In reference to unity, keep them unified. Now, <clears throat> looking at that, we might scratch our heads and say, well, is that a failure? Because look at how many denominations there are. Look at how many, you know, I mean, if you, if you just take from the time of, of the early church throughout the time of uh, up leading up to the, the Reformation, I mean, you see all the, the terrible things that were going on there, and then the Reformation brings us back to the centrality of the gospel. But then out of that, you still have so many different offshoots and all of this. Many theologians look at this and, and would say that this isn't referring to when Christ is saying to, that they may be one even as we are one, that he's, he's not talking about their ontological being, being one. But being one, one mind in their mission. Because that's what he's been referencing here. There might be different offshoots. We might have some disagreements. But the mission of the church, really and truly, as long as it's a true church, our missions, we really have unity in. And that's to see the law saved, to glorify our Lord while we have opportunity. Whether we're Calvinist, whether we're Arminian, if the goal of the church and the desire of the church in the practice of the church, all of that is grounded and centered within the scripture, and that, true, and that church preaches and teaches, preaches and teaches the, the, the word of God correctly, we would say, well, now wait a minute, if there are many, and wait a minute. They get the gospel right. The correct administration of the sacraments, and they seek to keep the purity of the church with church discipline. That's a true church. And the mission and goal of that church, bringing the lost to Christ. We can disagree on some of those other things, but we're really unified in the mission of the church. Many of our disagreements, at least within the Orthodox Christian faith, are, are really just in-house debates. There are some times in which we have to address serious matters, absolutely, because theology does matter. But the mission of the church is really unified. And if you look at it in the sense of the work of the Spirit of God, regardless if they are true believers in Christ, we're all united by the same Spirit. So in that sense, we could look and say, yes, 
we are one in that sense too because there's not a different spirit for the Calvinists and a different spirit for the Armenians and all of this. It's the, it's the same spirit of God who works in the hearts of all people, unifying, bringing about one body, one church. So that's the second petition. And that in itself has been maintained unless the church is, unless certain congregations or certain denominations have went off into another area. That's a whole different story. But maintaining the truths of Scripture and the gospel itself, this is absolutely seen, even though we have various uh, disagreements concerning sovereignty of God or uh, baptism, whether we ought to sprinkle or whether we ought to dunk, end-time views, various things like that. The mission of the church is united. So here's some things to look at. In light of all of these things, Jesus is praying, of course, on behalf of his disciples here, but the things that he's praying for his disciples are carrying over to all who believe. And the characteristics in which he is putting forth here of true disciples is true of God's people in every age. They receive the word of God. They believe that this is truly the word of God. This is an acknowledgement. Yes, we believe that this is the word of God and then there's that trusting, trusting in the Word of God. Glorifying our Lord through the bearing of fruit, all of these things. Glorifying our Lord and maintaining the distinction between us and the world. Between those who are in Christ and those who are in darkness, there should be a distinction here. So what then do we do? When it comes to people who do not believe that this is the word of God, who do not trust what it says, then we have to really question whether or not they are true believers based on that alone. Well, isn't that judging? Yes, it is. But a characteristic of a true believer is to trust that this is the word of God and commit yourself to it. Now, we all have areas in which that we, we need to be guarded against unbelief because we all have times in which we think, well, this... I know the Lord says this, but this just seems to be right at this particular moment that maybe I just need to go this route. And it goes back to this. Do we trust this? Because the characteristic of a believer is to trust the word of God. To acknowledge that this is the right way. This is, this is what the Lord said. And so these are the things that we do. That the Lord isn't telling us something that's going to be deceiving or, or untrustworthy or that's going to hurt us even more. Going our own way is what hurts us even more. But our Lord has given us His Word that we, may, that we may know and have answers and to know where we need to be turning when things come up in our life. Take great comfort to know this as well, of the great interest that God has in your life. Sometimes we think, well, does God care? Does he not care? If you belong to the Son, that means that the Father has chosen you from all eternity and that you have an importance because he has gifted you to his Son. So he is absolutely involved in everything in your life and cares for you and loves you. And let us be comforted as well to know that even in our failures, even in our shortcomings, our Lord has prayed for us. And that our Lord, through Him, 
we are perfected in the sight of God. There come a day in which we truly will be perfected in the sight of God. That'll happen at his appointed time. It's working towards that now. Because you think of what sanctification is, it's, it's, the, it's the perfecting of the, of the communicable attributes of God that will be perfected once we get there, it's a, but it's a gradual process. But even in our failures, we're still seen as holy in the sight of God, still seen as perfect in the sight of the Father because of the Son. So in our failures, God's love for you is not diminished at all because you are fully loved, fully cared for, fully protected, fully preserved because you're in the Son. So let us not wallow in our failures. Let us once again start afresh that our lives would reflect uh, the glorious gospel of our Lord that has worked in our hearts. We will continue on next Lord's Day as Jesus continues to pray for his disciples. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Thank you for the great comfort that it gives us in our hearts. This isn't a license. Father, we understand this isn't a license that we may continue in sin, but it is a great comfort to know that our high, high priest has prayed for us and that he perfects us in your sight so that not one of us will ever be lost. Not one of us will ever fall being preserved in your hand. Father, thank you for this unmerited gift, a gift that we never earned and a gift that we can't keep in ourselves. Thank you that it's by your power that we are kept, by your power that we continue to believe. Thank you. We praise you. We honor you because of this great work in us that is not of ourselves, but only in the Spirit of God who is applying to us the great benefits of what Christ has accomplished. Continue to work in us. Father, help us to be desirous even more to walk worthy. To be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.